in the second of a, a very brief exploration around a, a question that is profoundly important for world history. How will it all end? Last week we looked at the return, the promised return of Jesus Christ. I mentioned and outlined to you that the Bible teaches that Jesus will physically, visibly return to the earth and establish his uh, reign and rule which has been secured by his death and his resurrection and that he will return in a way that will uh, be seen by all of the world and that that return will somehow be linked to Jerusalem and that the same Jesus that went to heaven recorded in Acts chapter 1 verse 11 will return. Tonight I want to look at two further brief questions in connection to that and they, they may be considered to be slightly more controversial, although I hope that we don't end up fighting with each other over them. When will he return? And why will he return? I'd like you to read two parts of the Bible with me tonight, please. The first is John chapter 14. And the second is Revelation chapter 1. John chapter 14 um, nestles at the beginning of what is known as the farewell discourse. It is the night before Jesus Christ is betrayed by one of his friends, Judas, and is murdered. And in John 14, 15, and 16, we have a record of what happened that night. In John 17, we have a powerful picture of the prayer that he prays for his disciples. I think it's always interesting to hear the last words of a man or a woman. It tells you the essence of what they're about. Einstein's were lost to history because the person that heard him couldn't translate what he was saying. Jesus' last prolonged conversation is recorded in John 14, 15 and 16. It's deeply moving. And here's how he starts it. Do not... Let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Revelation chapter 1. Same man that wrote those words as he remembered Jesus saying them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes these words. Now he's an older man. He's been banished to an island called Patmos because of his faith in Jesus. And life is not looking good for him. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants. So this isn't John's revelation. This is Jesus' revelation shared with John. What must soon take place. 
He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom, priests, serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. Two powerful passages of scripture that root the promise of Jesus Christ's return to earth in our imaginations and ask us to think about them and reflect on them and allow them to have an impact on us. As we return to this subject again tonight, we will be leaving it in the next few weeks. I'm going to be preaching this Wednesday night and the following Wednesday night on on Hebrews chapter 12, a verse that describes heaven and the gathered community of the saints. Then we will leave these end times ideas and thoughts until the new year and at some point in 2020 I want to bring a more detailed study of some of the end times teaching of the Bible sometimes called eschatology I'm not sure whether I'll do that on a Sunday night on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday morning at 9 a.m but I or 10 a.m but I will let you know more about that in due course once we've worked that out as a team But tonight, I want to answer fundamentally two questions. Why will Jesus return? And when will he return? I'm not answering the question if he will return. Because the Bible makes it clear that he will. And I would suggest to you in brief that amongst the myriad of answers that could um, confuse you, that could perplex you, that could uh, tie you up in knots, as we think about the why he will, he will return, there are four simple thoughts that I want to leave with you. There are many more that I could give you. But there are four simple things that I want to remind you of tonight about why Jesus will return. The first isn't always seen as the most important by us, but I think it is a profoundly important um, reason. It's recorded in Philippians chapter 2 and um, in Ephesians and in John and to some extent in the reading from Revelation. And it is very simply this. When Jesus Christ returns to the earth, it will be a vindication of who he is and what he has achieved for us. 
It will be a moment when all of the creation sees that this man was who he claimed to be. In many ways, the ascension recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, is that heavenly vindication. It is that um, eternal vindication because Christ now stands or sits at the right hand of his Father, enthroned in a place of authority and power and dominion. He has been vindicated by his Father. But the world hasn't yet seen that vindication. Every tribe of the world hasn't yet seen it. Every nation of the world hasn't yet seen it. But there will be a day when every single person who has ever lived will see Jesus Christ and it will be at his return. It will be as if the Father is declaring to the whole creation he has always been who he has claimed to be. His death and his resurrection have brought about a transformation in history and in the world that I am vindicating as he returns as the conquering king. That's why in the New Testament there are different words used about his return. Two of them in particular that I mentioned very briefly last Sunday night matter. The first is epiphania. It's a Greek word and it means the arrival of a conquering king. The declaration of victory to the one who has returned with victory in his train. And the second is parousia. It is his appearing. It is his um, unveiling before the world. The first reason for his return is his vindication. Now, if you're not a Christian, that is a terrible day to be dreaded. If you're listening online and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're interested in some of this stuff, you're exploring it, or somebody brought you here tonight, make no mistake about this, friend. When Jesus Christ returns, he will be returning as the conquering king. The Bible makes clear in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee will bow before him. And every tongue on heaven and earth and under the earth will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. We used to sing a song, I don't know if we, you sang it here in Dundonald, and come now is the time to worship. And the chorus had something like, one day every knee will confess he is Lord. One day every tongue and knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you are already a follower of Jesus, then you have the privilege of that being a day that you can look forward to. A day full of hope, a day full of security, a day full of peace, a day full of promise. If you're not a Christian, then that is a terrible day. It's described in the Bible as the day of the Lord. And at various places throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is described as a great day, a glorious day, a wonderful day, and a dark day, and a mysterious day, and a dreadful day. That depends on what side of the fence you sit on when it comes to whether you have acknowledged that Christ is who he says he was. When he returns, it is as if the Father is vindicating him before every atom of creation, and that will include you. The question is whether or not you will choose to acknowledge who he is before that moment. I pray you do. The second is that he is returning to establish his kingdom. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, we read of a king who is gone and who will return, the king of kings and the lord of lords. 
to establish his reign and his rule. Now, I think sometimes we need to be a little careful about this language because we can make it sound like his kingdom isn't here now. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that his kingdom has been secured through his death and his resurrection. And when he returns, he will be returning to establish visibly what is already the case invisibly. Some people call that living in attention of already and not yet. Christ is already the king. He's already the savior. He's already won. He's already declared his victory. He's already secured salvation. He's already dealt with sin. He's already conquered the evil one. But you and I, if we are Christians, if you're not a Christian tonight, then you're not in this category yet. But those that are followers of Christ, either those who are Christians or those who are Jewish believers in the Messiah, whoever they might be, if they are followers of the Lord Jesus, then they are part of a vanguard of people who are the advance party of God's kingdom here on earth. We demonstrate to the world that God is who God claims to be. But we're told that in his second coming, Christ will establish visibly his kingdom and there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sin. There will be no more shame, no more questions, no more uncertainty, no more fear, no more doubt, no more separation, no more tears. What a wonderful promise. Thirdly, he is coming to claim his bride. I love the words of John 14 that I read to you just a few moments ago. I am going to prepare a place for you and I will return for you so that where I am, there you may be also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And listen to this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me so that where I am, there you may be also. Unless you have felt the sting of longing, you won't understand how powerful those words are. But when you remember that Jesus says that to his friends the night before he is murdered, when you remember that what he's doing in this moment of great vulnerability, we'll know that it's a vulnerable moment because in John 17, we're told that he weeps and cries out to his father, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. And he sweats drops of blood, a human condition that can only help an, an extremist. He's in such an, a, a state of pressure that in a wine a garden known as a garden of the wine press where, 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 where oils are pulled out of grapes or olives, the pressure on Jesus Christ is so great that he sweats blood. And just a few hours before it, he has said this to his disciples, I'm going, but I'm returning for you. You will not be left alone. In John 15 and John 16, in the rest of the sermon, in the rest of the farewell discourse, he says to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I'll not leave you abandoned. I'll not leave you neglected. You won't see me for a while, but I will return for you. I think when I first became a Christian, 
this wonderful picture of Jesus' promise to me was so real, so life-giving, partly because um, within 24 hours of becoming a Christian, I was thrown out of my home. So I guess I gravitated toward this sense of Jesus being my new home, being the safety that I needed, the hope and the security that I needed. And you know, that was 34 years ago, and I still think that. And fourthly, he is returning to judge the living and the dead. And nobody can avoid it. So when will he return? My second question. Bertrand Russell, the famous British atheist in 1957 wrote a small book called Why I Am Not a Christian and one of his chief reasons was he believed that Jesus was a liar and a charlatan because Jesus he said completely misunderstood his own mission and purpose in the world Russell believed that Jesus had promised that he was going to return quicker than he did because he hasn't returned and that Jesus somehow had misunderstood his mission and misunderstood his purpose he got it wrong. And as a result of him getting that wrong, Bertrand Russell said, if he can get that wrong, he can get everything wrong. If we can't trust him on this, we can't trust him on anything. Let me help you understand why Russell believed that for a moment and then explain to you why I think he was wrong. Turn with me in your Bibles to two passages in the Gospel of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. And I'll explain why these... Uh, Reflections on Russell matter in a moment. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus has sent the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles out. They're not yet apostles because he hasn't yet been resurrected. He hasn't died. But this is what he says to them in uh, verse 23 of chapter 10. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through all of the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now go to chapter 16. Verse 28, or 27. The Son of Man is to come with, the angel, with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. There's that judgment thing again. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Russell read those two passages and others and said, he didn't do that, therefore he's a liar. He's flawed, he's broken, he can't be trusted. And as a result, he refused to follow Jesus Christ. He didn't believe that Jesus was either wise or accurate because of promises like that. I wonder if we realize just how much that has impacted thinking around Jesus. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 31, that we'll read in a moment, repeated or told in a different way in Luke 21 and Mark 13, Jesus talks about his own return in a powerful, enigmatic, mysterious, challenging, inspiring, and moving way. 
In a moment, I will outline to you very briefly what those passages might mean and suggest to you that when Jesus speaks of signs of the times that will mark his return, there are three key areas that we should be thinking about and reflecting on. Signs of the times in the world, signs of the times in nature, and signs of the times in the church. But if Russell is right, then Jesus was wrong. Bertrand Russell and Jesus can't both be right. You might think, it's, why does this matter so much to you? Bertrand Russell was impacted deeply by modern Protestant liberal thinking. In 1901, a man called Albert Schweitzer wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. Schweitzer wanted to work out who this Jesus was. Bertrand Russell's position began 70 years before, not in Russell, but in the church. As theologians and leaders and clever women and men began to ask questions about, can this Jesus be trusted? Is he reliable? I mean, if he got some things wrong about his return particularly, then how can we trust him entirely? We have to reimagine him. We have to reinvent him. We have to mitigate down what he said to us so that we can understand him. In his book, Schweitzer talked that, spoke of Jesus being somebody who didn't really understand who he was and what his ministry was about. And he decided that it was built around crises again and again and again, a crisis of expecting his father to break into history and him not doing it. The first crisis Schweitzer notes is Matthew 10, the verse that Bertrand Russell quotes. He says that Jesus must somehow have thought that his father was going to break in and save Israel. He didn't do it. So Jesus regroups in a moment of panic and sends the 12 disciples out to do stuff. And then he does it again just a few chapters later because God the Father doesn't intervene again. So Jesus sends out 72 and Schweitzer argues that again and again in Jesus' ministry, this is what happens. He keeps thinking that the Father's going to intervene in history and he, the Father keeps failing to do so. So Jesus has to reset his expectations. And the greatest re reset of, of his expectations is on the cross. As Jesus dies, the reset to set all resets. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It didn't work. You didn't come. You didn't deliver me. Now, I don't know many Christians in the evangelical tradition who would hold to any of that. But many in the church have been impacted by the jadedness of the second coming. The disappointment of Christ not having returned. People like Rudolf Bultmann were deeply influenced by Albert Schweitzer. Russell was um, challenged by this notion and I wonder tonight if I can ask you a practical question. I know that that has sounded a little bit academic, but are you jaded? Let me ask you Christians, first of all, are you kind of just bumping along thinking, I don't really want to think about the second coming. It's not really that relevant to my life. I mean, I want to have kids and buy a house and go on holidays to Florida and, 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 and go to weddings. I want to enjoy a whole load of things. If Jesus returned, it would be quite inconvenient for me. There's something about the passion and the zeal and the possibility 
of Christ's return that captivates you when you're first converted and you quickly park it somewhere when you think, actually, I want to enjoy my own life. Thanks very much. I want to see my grandchildren. I want to have kids. (laughs) I don't know whether to say this or not because some of you would be offended. I remember talking to a 17 or an 18 year old young fella and he'd become a Christian. He said, I hope Jesus doesn't come back before I can have sex. (laughs) There could be a whole set of reasons that make you just park the second coming somewhere else. And yet, in the Bible, the second coming of Jesus is an energizer. It's a, it's a head lifter. It's a courage giver. It's a confidence builder. It's what keeps us on a short leash. It's what reminds us to keep our priorities right. How sad would it be if we ended up being students of the second coming who weren't impacted by the hope of it and all we wanted to do was know the theology but not have our hearts and hands moved at least Schweitzer was honest when Jesus speaks to his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 I'll come back to um, Russell in a moment They ask him profound questions that are deeply important about trying to work out the when of his return. And I'd like to read some verses from Matthew chapter 24 with you now. As I said earlier, this is recorded also in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Mark, Luke 21 and Mark 13. There are some differences, but we're going to focus on Matthew 24. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, he's just wept over Jerusalem. His disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Then he asked them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I tell you, not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him Privately saying, Tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered them, Beware that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All this is but the beginning of the birth pangs. Then they will hand you over to be tortured and will put you to death and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away and they will betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But anyone who endures to the end will be saved. And this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place as was spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Someone on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house. 
Someone in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For at that time there will be great suffering, such as has never been known from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, one from end of heaven, from one end of heaven to the other. It's a powerful, enigmatic and mysterious reading that combines immediate promises and long-term prophecies. And deciphering them actually causes us to rise in faith and to find great courage. The beginning of Matthew 24 tells us that Jesus is walking away from the temple. If you've ever been in Jerusalem, you will realize the, um, the irony of the first few verses. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away and his disciples came, out, came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They asked him, you see all these, do you not? He, then he asked them, you see all these, do you not? You couldn't miss them. I mean, the temple structure is ginormous. And where this takes place is on the outside of the city. So Jesus, as he walks away from this enormous structure, they were saying to him, what's going to happen? And he says, can you see this? It's like standing outside um, the houses of parliament and saying, can you see it? Or standing at the foot of the morns and saying, can you see any hills around here? There is this enormous structure and Jesus answers questions that they are posing to him about the end of all things about the end of the temple and about how the world will come to an end he answers two fundamental questions that are really important for you to understand as we think about when he might return questions about the temple And questions about the history of the world, about the world's future itself. Now to understand how important these answers are, I need you to flip in your understanding of something with me. For a Jewish person at this moment in time in history, it was more likely that the world would end than the temple would be destroyed. There was absolutely no way, there was no space in their theology, in their understanding, in their concept of the world or power 
or the future. There was no way that the temple could be destroyed. It could never happen. The world would end before the temple would. The world would be devastated before the temple would be destroyed. They couldn't see it ever happening. It just was not even on their radar. So Jesus explains to them that the temple will be destroyed. He's speaking to them perhaps around 30 AD. Maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later, depending on how you work out the timing. These books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were recorded no later than 50 or 51 or 52 AD. So the events in them happen around about 30 AD. The writing down of those events happens at the very latest around 52 AD. In 70 AD, the Roman authorities destroyed the temple. In a war that began in 66 AD, led by Roman authorities, uh, because of uprisings in Israel, the temple was destroyed. It was not just attacked, it was decimated. It was absolutely pulled apart. Now, understanding that is important. And I want to give you a couple of examples of why that matters. When it comes to working out end time teaching, there are lots of different ideas, but there are two predominant ones that I want to reflect on with you. One is called um, futurism, that everything in Matthew 24 points to some point in the future. Everything in it is, is way ahead at the very end of time. The other is called preterism or historicism. And that is that everything in Matthew 24 happened within one generation of what Jesus said. I don't think that either sufficiently answers the text of Matthew 24. Instead, I think Jesus was telling them about things that were going to happen in their lifetime as well as things that were going to happen at the end of time. And unpicking that is not straightforward. But actually, if you will take the time to do it with me for a few moments tonight, it will encourage you if you are a Christian. It will help you realize why somebody like Bertrand Russell is absolutely wrong. How will it end? What will happen in the temple? And what will be the signs of these things? Around about the time that Jesus prophesied, and explained to his disciples what was going to happen, there was another future-telling mechanism that was a popular one. It was called the Oracle of Delphi. It was a bit like a horoscope. It was vague. I see in your future a wonderful, bright, handsome, good-looking, wealthy, um, popular woman or man, depending on what you need. I see some troubles, but with perseverance, you can overcome. The Oracle of Delphi was hugely popular. People traveled from all over the world to see it because they wanted to know their futures. That's why people read their horoscopes now. 
People are desperate to know what's going to happen in their futures. They want to find out. Jesus' responses and words are nothing like that. They are specific. They are clear. In fact, what you've just heard me read to you contains some of the most astounding promises that were fulfilled down to symbols and ideas that were so specific that this passage on its own elevates hearing what Jesus says about the future to a whole different place. What he says to a Jewish people who, is, who could never believe that the temple would be destroyed is this temple's going to be destroyed. Every brick of it is going to be dismantled. The whole edifice is going to collapse. In Matthew 24, verses 1 to 4. When Bertrand Russell reads that, he thinks Jesus is talking about the end of time, but he's not. He's talking about that specific temple. Let me give you a couple of examples to help you understand what I mean. When the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70, one of the things that they did was, because they did it all the time, but it's attested by Josephus and by others, a Jewish historian, is they brought an ensign. Do you know what an ensign is? Anybody ever been in the BB or the GB? You know what an ensign is? It's their colors. The Roman authorities, when they took Jerusalem, brought their ensign into Jerusalem and then into the temple and then into the very center of the temple, the Holy of Holies. Now, I want you to read, it had the symbols of Rome on it, including the symbol of an eagle that in Roman um, heraldry speaks of worship, authority, and ultimate dominion. Now look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 28. Read it with me. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus is talking about a moment in the future. How many of your Bibles, if you're looking at them, say in Matthew chapter 24, 28, vultures? Put your hand up. How many of you have another word? What's the word? Eagles is a better translation. 40 years before it happens. Jesus says, there's going to come a day when this temple is destroyed. When every brick of it, every stone of it will be moved. The Romans did that so that they could get the gold that was dripping down between the stones. He says, it'll be surrounded by corpses in the street. That's what happened. The Romans slaughtered people on the way to the temple. And he says, and when you see the sign of an eagle at the very center of the temple, you will know that this prophecy has been fulfilled. And the Roman Empire hoisted its eagle at the very center of the temple in AD 70. The promise that Jesus made here is fulfilled. This isn't the first time that that's happened. 350 or 250 years before Jesus' birth, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king that came into Jerusalem and destroyed a, a revolt, brought with him symbols of his power and his God, Zeus. 
And he brought a dead pig and cut it in two and placed it at the center of the Jewish temple. Daniel called it an abomination of desolation. It was the most sacrilegious thing that could happen. But that happened before Jesus' words. And Jesus points forward and says, this temple will be ridiculed, destroyed, and broken. And when you see that, don't panic. Because it's not the end. It's just a sign that what I'm telling you is true. You can trust me. The end is not yet. Jesus doesn't only look to his immediate future, though. He looks further forward. Look at verse 29 with me for a moment. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This isn't about what happened in AD 70. It can't be. It's too big. It's too global. It's too transforming. It's too immense. Jesus is referring to something at the end of time that the Bible describes as him returning with the trumpet of God and the voice of the archangel to collect his children and to demonstrate his power. By the way, Bertrand Russell also misunderstands Matthew 16 and Matthew 10, if you're interested. In Matthew 16, when Jesus says, none of you will die without seeing the Son of God in his glory, Russell's missing that in Matthew 17, Jesus is transfigured before them. The bright blazing light of who he is is demonstrated to these men within days of the promise. Russell's wrong. The Bible isn't. In Matthew 10, when Jesus says, you will see him return, he's not referring to the end of time. He's referring to his resurrection, to his victory over death. And every one of the disciples except Judas saw him. So the temple is destroyed. The stones are removed. The desolation of sacrilege takes place. If Jesus can be that accurate about what's going to happen 40 years after his crucifixion, We would do well to listen to what he's got to say about the rest of time, don't you think? Our problem is that we turn Jesus into somebody like Nostradamus. All these funny little promises and ideas that we can flick and bend so that every generation thinks, I'm the generation. Martin Luther thought he could predict when Jesus would return. John Wesley thought he could predict when Jesus could return. And a billionaire businessman in America in 2010 and 11 tried to predict when Jesus would return. Do you remember? He said it would be May 2011, paid millions of pounds for billboards. Of course, Jesus didn't return. So he changed his mind and said it would be October and paid for more. But don't blame the Bible for those people's inconsistencies. The Bible does say something about when we can work or whether Jesus will return, but it doesn't give us a date. It does give us roughly the time of year. The book of Zechariah makes it clear that Jesus will return um, somehow around the Feast of Trumpets. And that his return will carry with it a sense of the Feast of Tabernacles being fully celebrated for the last time. Doesn't tell us when that will be, but it tells us when in the season of 
the Jewish culture and year it might be. But let me reflect with you on these three things in Matthew's gospel. The signs in the world, the signs in nature, and the signs in the church before we draw this all together. What will be the signs in the world? Well, verse 6 tells us that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Nations and intertribal warfare. In verse 7, we are told that that will continue and that it will have a profound impact on how we understand and view the world. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But all this is the beginning of the birth pang. So how far back shall we go? Last week, I suggested to you that there hasn't been a second of peace since the end of the Second World War. Then I said there hasn't been a second of peace since the end of the First World War in 1918. But did you realize that there hasn't been a second of peace since the end of the Boer War? At the end of the 19th century? That the world hasn't known peace across its whole surface since the end of the Crimean War in the 1860s and 50s or the Napoleonic Wars. In fact, you can go all the way back historically to 1066 and the Battle of Hastings and there hasn't been a second where there hasn't been conflict somewhere in the world. And that's about as far back as we can go historically, accurately. Jesus says something about conflict. Before there were nations, before the concept of the nation state was in place, he says tribes will fight one another and they will continue to fight one another and it will get worse. How has it got worse? Well, of course it's got worse. There are more conflicts. But when Jesus was speaking these words or when the Battle of Trafalgar took place or the Battle of Waterloo or even the First World War or the Second World War, we didn't have the capacity to destroy the world in the way that we have now. We didn't have the concepts of destruction that sit at our fingertips the way they do now. The conflicts that can arise across the world, the way in which hatred can rise, and don't think that that's just a mechanical thing. I will never, ever, ever get over the fact that in 100 days in the mid-1990s, a million people were killed in Rwanda by machetes and knives and spears and petrol bombs. A million people. Our world descends into conflict. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. Militarized conflict is not going away. It's higher than it's ever been. Don't allow yourself to think that just because there, haven't been, there hasn't been a third world war that conflict is being removed. There is an increasing intensity, an increasing visibility, an increasing destruction that comes through militarized conflict. What about nature? Verse 7 tells us that there will be Famines and earthquakes in various places. That this is but the beginning of death pangs. 600,000 people a year die from malaria. There are more people that die from preventable diseases and they are entirely preventable on planet Earth 
than all the people ruled together who were killed in the Boer War, the Crimean War, the First World War, the Second World War, the uh, Suez Crisis, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Afghanistani War, and the Iraq War. There are more people killed because of malnutrition and preventable disease in the world today than there have ever been. Jesus was accurate. If we were living in a world clock and the day began at 12 a.m. and would go for 24 hours, our era of history and time began at 11.50 p.m., We're now sitting at around 11.53 or 11.54. And in four minutes, we have have used 97% of the world's resources. This planet is simply not sustainable in its current form. But Ian, Jesus says again, This is not the end. It's the beginning of birth pangs. Aren't we seeing this now? Well, then what about the church? In verse 5, Jesus says there will be many false messiahs. One of the things that happened when the temple was destroyed, by the way, was that the genealogical records of the line of David were destroyed. It's no longer possible to prove whether anybody is of the line of David. They were burned in AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. Whoever the Messiah was has to have been before that to be verified. Jesus says there will be false messiahs. And how many have we had? False religions, false ideas, false prophets, false hopes, false promises, false claims all around us. He tells his immediate followers that there there will be a persecution of Christians. The first general, the first localized persecution of Christians happened in AD 64, within 30 years of Jesus being killed. The first general persecution began, one in the year 200 and a second in the year 300. If you were to count every single believer that we are aware of that has been martyred from the death of Jesus until 1969 and add them up, that number is less than the number of Christians that have been martyred for their faith in the last 50 years. There are more Christians killed every year now because of faith in Jesus than there ever have been. Jesus also says in verse 10 and verse 11 that two things will happen in the church. There will be an apostasy and a weakening. There will be a a, a watered-down dilution of the gospel and of claims of who Christ is and of what we believe about him. But in contradistinction to that, in Joel chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 2, we are told that in the last days, Jesus will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Two things will happen at the end of time. The church will get weaker and believers will become more passionate. Isn't that what's happened in my lifetime? Those of you that are under 30 or 40 and you've been Christians five or 10 years, don't you see a church that is weakening in its its theological convictions? 
giving up on the deity of Jesus, giving up on the uniqueness of the Father, giving up on the power of the Holy Spirit, giving up on the authority of the Bible, giving up on the need for conversion, giving up on the purpose of prayer, giving up on the place of Israel, giving up on the promises of God's power and purpose in the world all around us. There has never been a denomination or a stream that has liberalized and grown. Not in the history of the church. And I am aware that many pastors and preachers and bishops and leaders listen to my teaching here. And my word is clear and honest and humble. Depart from the Bible and you depart from the power of God. Abandon the gospel and we have nothing to offer the world. Give up on the presence of the Holy Spirit and we may as well just try to start a social club. We are a church called by God to preach the gospel and to lift up the Son of God and to be rooted in the Word of God and believe that transformation starts on the inside out. And it will become harder to be such a church. People around us will mock us. They will laugh at us. They will ridicule us. They will call us fundamentalists. I get it every day on Facebook or somewhere else. But none of that should frighten us because all of these warnings are given so that we might know that God is still in control. He hasn't abandoned his people. He hasn't walked away. He's not going to give up on us. In verse 12, Jesus says there will be an increase in lawlessness. There'll be a coldness in the love of many. And in verse 14, he says, this gospel will be proclaimed to all the earth and that this must happen before he returns where does that all leave us tonight we live in a church that loses its way we live in a world that is confused about truth we live on a planet that is broken and cannot sustain itself but if we serve God we serve a God who knows the end from the beginning who will not abandon us, who holds on to us. And this teaching of the second coming in the New Testament is not so that you can start to find dates and work out um, where you need to be on a certain day. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus uses three parables immediately after this passage, bridesmaids, talents, and the judgment of the nations. And he wants his people to understand something. When everything shakes around you, don't panic. I'm still God. When it looks like it's all going the wrong way, I know what I'm doing. When you get worried about who becomes prime minister or leader of the UN or president of the European Union or president of the United States, when you worry about who has their finger on a nuclear button, don't worry too much because I'm still God. I know what I am doing. But be ready. Be ready for my coming. Be ready to face hardship. Be ready to face uncertainty. But remember that I am coming. And I'm coming for you. I have prepared a place for you. You do not need to be afraid. And so we end where we began. Matthew chapter 24 tells us that the end will come quickly. It will come unexpectedly. It will come definitively. And it will come powerfully. Where do you stand tonight? Inspired by the promise of Christ's return? 
or not bothered. This afternoon I went up into my room. I was going to try and have a nap, but I didn't. Instead, I started praying for this service. And I felt as if God was saying to me, one of the things I want to do tonight, Malcolm, is take people who have parked the power of my promises and are getting on with life, forgetting that it has an end date. And I want to give them courage again. I want to reawaken their imaginations. I want to touch people so that the power of my promised return can motivate them to worship, to pray, to give, to serve, to proclaim the gospel, to reach the lost. How motivated are you by Jesus? How inspired are you by Jesus? Are you awake? I didn't look at you on purpose, Pip. Are you alert? Are you one of those people that used to listen to the Bible's preaching and teaching and talking about Jesus' return and you could feel the hairs on your back, the back of your neck sticking up and now you're like, mm. I pray that God will inspire us again, that he will motivate us again, that he will give us a sense of passion and urgency do I believe that Jesus will come in the next six months, next five years? No, I don't. I think there is much that still has to happen. I'm going to unpack some of those things with you next year in a deeper series that will require you bringing a great deal of concentration and a Bible and a notepad. At some point in 2020 or 2021, I want to teach you church history and go through 250 years at a time and help you understand the great story of God. I want you to realize that there are things that God is doing in the world today that are remarkable and beautiful and that he invites us into them. But if you are a Christian tonight, are you ready? Are you moved by the promise of his return? Does it inspire you? Does it make you a little nervous? I hope so. I want to live right. I want to keep a short account. I want to get stuff sorted out. I've only got one life and I want it to count. And I'm not going to spend another 10 years dithering and fighting and debating and wondering whether I should buy a holiday home or serve Christ. Just serve Christ and buy the holiday home. <laughs> And what about you if you're not a Christian? Are you really ready? Are you ready online? Are you ready to face him? Because you'll face him. And my deepest prayer is that you face him as a friend. That you receive his grace and his mercy. But not only that, that you receive a purpose that nothing can take out of your hand. 
that economic collapse can't change, that marital failure can't change, that death can't take away, that despair can't take away. The purpose of serving Christ lasts forever. This isn't just a plea to get right with God. This is a plea to live in the most liberated, energized, exciting, uplifting, inspiring, imagination-bursting way. I sometimes hear Christians describe being Christians, and I think, you know what? If that's what being a Christian is, I don't think I want to be one. Because you just make it sound like such a miserable existence. Following Jesus Christ, the one who will return, and believing it, changes every song you sing. It changes every decision that you make. It has a power to hold you in the deepest storms. And I pray tonight that you will experience this remarkable God now.